Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 29 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah, and I am the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm today joined by co-host Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great, Kareem. How are you doing? I'm good. Today is the first day I have my real, like, podcast microphone setup. Zach just helped me out, so I'm feeling great. I probably sound a lot better than I normally do to listeners, so I'm excited. It sounds fantastic. I, I am loving it. Yeah, no, so am I. So am I. So today's uh, an interesting episode. I actually really like doing these episodes. Zach and I do these periodically. And uh, essentially, it's going to be a Q&A. Folks have been asking us questions through our website. They've been asking us questions through social media. We have a list of seven questions we're going to go through. We're going to bounce them off each other, discuss them, and close it out. Uh, so that's today's episode. Zach, can you, before we get started, just tell everyone how they can ask questions uh, to Modern Classrooms Project that we answer? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple ways. You can go to modernclassrooms.org slash askmcp, and there's a form you can fill out there. Or you can tweet at us with the hashtag AskMCP, and we will aggregate those answers, and we may answer them on an upcoming Q&A. Perfect. Perfect. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started, Zach? Why don't you fire off with the first question? Yeah, let's do it. This first question says, if the students can retake the mastery quiz until mastery is achieved, how do you get them to practice the skills instead of just using the quiz to practice? It's an interesting question. Um you know, I, I always think about this on a case-by-case basis. So you kind of want to assess, in my opinion, and Zach, I'm curious around what you think, like what's the driving force behind why a kid didn't actually show mastery? So sometimes I would, you know, give a student a mastery check. They do it. It's clearly not right. And more than anything, it's clear they actually have no idea how to execute the skill, in which case I actually send them back to the assignment and potentially even the video. The first question I usually ask is, show me your guided notes. If I look at their guided notes and it's complete and done effectively, then I'm like, you may want to revisit the video, but more than anything, like here's a new set of practice problems or new things to revisit. Or I might say, hey, where's your assignment? Let's check that. So if there's a way to send them back to do the work, I usually would do that, right? If there's a way that they might be revising their assignment or there's evidence they didn't actually complete the mastery, uh, the guided notes in the video, I would send them there. If they have in fact done all those things, And when I'm looking at their mastery check, they still really don't have much of an understanding. That's a good time to do like a full reteach. I might actually pull the kid and spend like five minutes reteaching the skill. And then finally, you know, what was more frequent, I would say, is I would see a kid who completed a mastery check and they were close, just didn't hit all the bases, right? So then you actually isolate like what element of the mastery check they're not getting and then provide them with a reteach and support on that particular element of the mastery check. A lot of times I use the mastery check and say, hey, go revisit this particular mastery check, redo it. And then once I see that you can execute it effectively, I'm going to give you a new one. So, you know, I always tell folks, 
the first thing you should do and one of the benefits of the model is like assess what's actually driving the misunderstanding. If it's like a total misunderstanding of the concept, they should probably redo the lesson essentially or at least core parts of it and revisit the video. If it's specific to one element of the assignment or skill, you want to provide potentially reteach and kind of focus on that element of it and maybe even have them redo that particular part of it so they're clear on how to execute it. Zach, I'm curious if you see this in a similar way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say very similar things especially the part about reteaching. You know, you can really leverage the time that you get back from not lecturing, the the sort of freedom you have to move around the classroom to sit with a particular kid and work with them. And and you can be that practice for them, right? You can work with them and figure out what they didn't understand and help them to understand it and fill those gaps. Um, In my particular case, my mastery checks are a little different because they're not, I mean, it's not a quiz. It's not like problems they're solving. Uh, it's the actual task they have to do for the project at whatever step they're at. And so if they didn't do it right, I'll just give them feedback and tell them what they didn't do right, and then they'll revise it and have to do it again to the same piece of work. Um, and so in my case, this question isn't it doesn't exactly apply to my case. But I, I would say, like, if a student is not get, getting the master check right, if they're doing something wrong, you don't have to let them take it again, and you don't have to let them just breeze through the content. Like you can tell them what they can practice, what they can do, and and you can control that sort of process for them and help them practice other materials, other questions, and give them things to do before trying again. Yeah, I mean, that's that, like you can think of interventions on the fly, right? You know, in a math class, you can just come up with new problems and say, try these three. I would just go up to a whiteboard and I'd put up three new problems and say, do these. Um, You might actually also just want to push a kid to explain their understanding, like explain with three bullet points what you understand about this particular skill, just to like pull out what is going on with the student and what they do and do not understand. So, you know, you don't want to recreate a whole bunch of assignments and all that kind of stuff because that's really, really time consuming. Instead, just like have a plan for each core misunderstanding that might come up for how you would push students forward. That's actually one of my favorite things to do is like, if I know in a particular lesson, like the three most common misunderstandings, that's a fairly easy thing to just like jot down and then think about what your plan is when those things come up, just so you feel prepared for that exercise. And that's something that you get better at over time. Like when you first do the model, it may feel overwhelming to do that. But after you've done it for a year, it's super easy to think back and like kind of just be prepared with the common misunderstandings and the approach you want to use to get them there. So, you know, that that's my general piece of advice there. Yeah, that's actually, it's interesting you said that that's something that I really took from the modern classrooms model that I didn't realize that I needed um, is that sort of sense of what students often get wrong. You know, I I review so many copies of the same mastery check because all of my students are doing it. I really get a sense of like what's what is difficult and what do I have to find a new way to teach and what's easy for the kids. And so it really prepares me to 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 do this right to sit with a kid who's not getting something and help them understand. Yeah. It's really interesting when you have the time live to review student performance and mastery checks because it allows you to actually see these patterns, right? A lot of times in traditional settings when I would like review all the assignments at once, like two days after I'd taught it, like, yeah, I remembered what kids commonly got wrong, but I wasn't actually 
using it for anything and engaging with it. So you kind of forget about it. Um, but in this structure, like you're actually engaging in a lot of reteaches and a lot of small group instruction. You're remembering, like I had to do this like six times with this particular class period. It also determines sometimes whether you should have a whole group discussion about something. Yes. You know, usually if I see the same misconception three, four times in a row, that's time to just pause the class and say, Hey, everyone listen to me for a second. Like you're struggling with this right now. Um, I've talked to about six of you about this, so I just want everyone to be clear on this. It's also a good time to have some voices who are really good at that skill to share how they solve that misconception or what's wrong with that misconception. So interesting model there. Cool. I like that question. Um, the next one is a very common one I run into. Um, and Zach, I don't know if you've seen this as a mentor. How do you handle summative assessments when some students have not actually mastered all the skills? Uh, Zach, why don't you first answer this and kind of provide some clarity to on what your summatives are, and then I can also share some input. Sure. I, I, so my, my class is structured as a project-based class, and so each lesson is one sort of small piece of the overall project, and once you finish the, the sequence of lessons, you have a project that's finished, and that's the summative. Um, I, I actually grade summatives in more or less the same way that I always have, um, even before modern classrooms, and just sort of how far the students made it into the the progression, right, into the unit, will determine how high their grade is, just because of the way that the unit is set up, right? If they didn't make it to lessons eight or nine, they'll be missing something. And and that's how I grade their summatives. That's what my rubric is based on. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I, would, I would say that almost every teacher does it the same way, which is that you treat the summatives the same as you would in a traditional setting. It all goes back to the overarching idea that, you know, would you rather have a kid have a surface level understanding of 10 lessons or actually master seven? Ultimately, you still want kids to take that summative. And if I'm a student who's only mastered seven out of 10 lessons, one of the most important learning experiences for why I should probably be a better time manager and listen to my teacher when they say you should be on pace is to see the impact of only mastering seven lessons on the summative assessment. And one thing I always tell teachers is like, don't underestimate the value of then addressing that reality. I always on days when I would pass back summative assessments would use that as an opportunity to have one-on-one discussions with students, especially because usually depending on how quickly I could grade the summative, that might be a day where they're, you know, all watching the first instructional video and I'm having one-on-one discussions with kids and I'm saying like, look, you had a 74% on the summative. You also only mastered eight out of 10 skills from the last unit. So naturally that makes sense because you mastered 80% of the content, you struggled on a couple of questions. No surprise. You got to see like, that's the nature of the game. Yeah. And it really teaches kids like it. What's so interesting about that is some people perceive that as like, Oh, but what if they get down on themselves? And I always say like, that actually got kids motivated and gave them hope because they were like, wait a minute, I mastered eight out of 10, got a 74. Like if I had only mastered those other two, like I would have done really well on this test. So I actually like kind of did well given the circumstances. And that idea is really powerful because it reinforces the notion for kids that they can actually be successful um, and that they did master skills. They just didn't master all of them. And the things they need to work on are actually softer skills like 21st century skills. The one thing I'd add here is like, this is contingent on how you use must do, should do's, and aspire to do's. I mean, in some of my classes where I had a super diverse set of learners, if I excused a kid for a should do or an aspire to do, then I didn't have them take that portion of the test. 
And that just depends on how you're using the lesson classifications and whether or not you're treating them as like everyone should be chasing after all these lesson classifications. And if you don't, you know, hit all of them, like that's going to impact your grade. Or if you're legitimately excusing kids for different lesson classifications, in which case they shouldn't be punished on the summative as a result. So if, you know, six out of 10 lessons were must-dos and you told a kid all they had to do is the must-dos, then they should only be tested on the must-dos. Otherwise, it's sort of a weird model that we're setting some false expectations for kids. But I think that covers it generally. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. And in my case, the summatives, I mean, the projects, they don't, the requirements for the projects don't include what they do on the aspire to do's. Um, they can do them and that's great, but it won't affect their grade either way. Um, yeah. And it's interesting hearing you say all that and, and thinking about this question, like the fact of teaching in a modern classrooms model doesn't change what a summative assessment is right? at the end of the day you know, it's supposed to be a summative assessment of what the student has learned. And if they haven't finished all of the the lessons or they haven't mastered all the skills, the summative should show that. And so that correlation between their progress through the unit and their score on the on the test or on the summative, that's data for us and it's data for them too. And, and you make a great point that showing them that, right? Look, you finished 70% of the lessons and you got you to gotta see. I think that's a great a great way of teaching them. Like, this is how we're learning to succeed on these summatives. Yeah, you know, I've had some interesting conversations with other organizational leaders who sort of are are working on forms of grading innovation and just like instructional innovation that take it a whole step further, like rethinking like even the notion of grading and like whether or not students should even be going to like classes like geometry and algebra one. And, you know, I see the interesting elements of thinking about really forward thinking innovation like that. But I think there's a real danger to, and like overdoing it. If the rest of the world doesn't actually follow suit, you know, like ultimately if I knew my kids were going to a college and in that college, they were going to go to classes that gave tests. You still want to prepare them for that reality. Even if you don't love the notion of a test, it's important that the kids know that they're going to get tested. Um, and in many cases, like if they want to be a doctor, they have to take the MCAT. You know, these are important concepts that, you know, we don't want to go so far um, to actually have them feel unprepared for the realities of the real world. Now, if some of those structures change down the road, fantastic. If they make sense, um, then great. And then we can kind of work backwards from there. But I, I always say our model is designed to really infuse some of these core ideas of personalization, building strong relationships, student-centered instruction, 21st century skills, but still isn't so, so crazy that A, it's really difficult to implement in like a normal school or a normal district, and B, like doesn't provide students with a learning environment that is totally different than what they're going to deal with when they leave our classrooms. Like we still want to make sure they're prepared for what's ahead in their life. And summatives are part of that. And understanding that if you're unprepared for the summative, you will not succeed on the summative uh, is an important concept to understand. It's interesting. Like a lot of the misconceptions that I see about the model coming from my, from my mentees or other people that I talk to are misconceptions that are based in the idea that the model is completely revolutionary and totally tears up everything we've been taught and everything we've done. And I, I always have to say like, well, really it's, it's the same teaching. You know, we're still teaching content. We're teaching other things as well in a really fantastic way. But I've always described it as like, it's the, in a sense, like what I've always wanted to be able to do is just the keys to it. Yeah. And I hear this from my, from my mentees as well. And from other teachers who teach in, in, in the, using the model, it's like, this is just the way I've always wanted to do it. And I just never knew how, 
but it's the same process, you know, and a summative is a summative and learning is learning. So, yeah, I mean, what you just described, we see, we, we, we run into this problem that like core misconception of almost like people thinking the model is almost more radical than it is. is right. It's most common with self-pacing. Yeah. Because whenever someone hears self-pacing, they just assume like endless self-pacing. Like if you self-pace, you just never, ever create guardrails. And it's like a total relief when educators hear about our model and realize like we're actually saying self-pacing within each unit of study. And in many cases, like shorter chunks than that. And actually you as an educator totally decide that yourself. Like some teachers are doing self-pacing one week at a time. So, you know, that's one of the most common areas where people hear our model and they're like, what? Like kids are just going to learn like 150 skills over the course of nine months self-paced. And it's like, no, they're going to actually learn like four five, seven, eight, maybe 12 skills in a chunk of time. And they're going to have variability and pacing within that. So I think it's an important thing to highlight. Cool. So moving on to the next question, this one's about collaboration. Um, so the question says, how do you build in more daily collaboration when everyone is in different paces? And it says the students will ask each other questions and figure out some stuff out together. And I have some group work or other project that they can work on once they pass a certain lesson, but not sure this is enough. Zach, what are your thoughts here? This question, is, I think it's a great transition from what we were just talking about, because I feel like there's a misconception in the question that everyone is at different places. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, just because it's self-paced doesn't mean that everybody is on a completely different lesson. More or less, students are around the same pace. And so when it comes to collaboration, I group kids together who are on the same lesson. Or I group kids together who are maybe a couple of kids who are behind with one who is ahead. Uh, I sort of use the pacing tracker to divide up my my students into groups that I think will work productively together. And I think that the pacing tracker or the progress tracker is the answer to this question. Uh, we've had several episodes about collaboration of the podcast, actually, and I'll link them in the show notes. Um, but this always comes up. And I feel like it can seem somewhat chaotic if you haven't thought through the, the logistics of it and the process. But once you see it in action, it's not really chaotic. It's just every kid is working on whatever they're working on. And then you know what they're working on because you have the progress tracker. And so you can take that data and do really useful things with it in a lot of different ways. And that that collaboration that I see when I group a kid who is ahead with a kid who is behind, it's some of the most productive collaboration I've ever seen between my students. You know, it's really cool to see a kid be like, oh no, but you got to do it this way and try changing this and move this around. Or maybe you might try this. It's like they're having a, an authentic conversation about the work um, and they're also really just helping each other out. Like it's it's true collaboration. I agree with you that baked in there is a little bit of a misconception around like the variance and pace. You know, I've always told folks like with the exception of really rare cases where like one or two kids just like fly through content or one or two kids are like pretty much just not around and haven't been able to get started kids are always within like two or three lessons of each other, right? Like the, the kids that were, you know, following the furthest behind would be on lesson three and the kids that were farthest ahead were like on lesson six. So like that's, I think a, a good thing to highlight, right? Which is that like kids are actually not that far apart from each other. But I think actually what I read more in this is like, I'm hearing a fair amount of collaboration. Like students are asking each other questions and helping each other figure stuff out. And you also have like projects and times for people to work with each other. I, this hits home for me because I did a lot of just personal research when I was initially like just doing the model, but also just trying to be a better teacher because I was 
constantly frustrated by the pressure to get kids collab collaborating to the point where I was not entirely sure it was productive. And I just think just generally speaking, like anytime you want kids to collaborate, I think it's worth asking whether or not you want that because someone told you they should be collaborating or it's actually productive for the kids to collaborate. And think less about like what the arbitrary sort of expectations that have been told to you around collaboration are. You probably as an educator know better than anyone else whether A, the collaboration is purposeful and B, whether there's not enough collaboration in your classroom. You know, if you sit through a class period where you'd like kids to be working together and they're all just like siloed and silent, obviously a red flag. And if that's not happening, but like there's a 20 minute span of time and it's quiet in your class, like cool. If kids are engaged and learning and working, fantastic. Like there is this weird, just like gray expectation around like kids should always be collaborating. And I actually think that's destructive. Like, yeah, that's, it annoyed me as a student when like my, it felt like my teacher was constantly making me collaborate just because someone told them that I should be collaborating. And I was actually like, I'm actually like working on something right now and I'm like getting better at it. And I just want to be left alone for like 15 minutes to just work. And the kids feel the same way. You don't want kids to get super comfortable to the point where they're like always working in silos, but you also don't want to just like make kids collaboration, collaborate for collaboration's sake. So if your kids are working together, like quite frequently throughout class when they stumble on stuff, if you have like planned collaboration activities, but you're just like constantly questioning whether there's enough collaboration, I just encourage you as an educator to just like take a step back and ask yourself whether those pressures are coming from some other concept and not actually like rooted in what you think is best for the student's ability to master skills or building like key 21st century skills. Um, And oftentimes when I did that, I realized like, I was worried about kids collaborating because someone told me to worry about kids collaborating, not because I was, it was actually contributing to their own learning. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's why I think it has to be authentic. If it's not authentic, then it feels like they're being forced into it. And that you're right, that's destructive. That that's, has the opposite effect. I always ask the kids, do you want me to put you together? Um, I'll never force kids to collaborate, you know, unless they're working in a group anyway. <laughs> I'll never put them in a breakout room this year together or set them together. That authenticity is really important here. And it sounds like if if the kids are asking each other questions and figuring out stuff together, that's cool. That is collaboration. Like that is authentic collaboration. And, you know, if you try and force it on them, you might even lose some of that. Let's let it happen. 100% agree. I 100% agree. All right. We are going to take a short break. We're going to hear from Kate with a love from our teachers. And we will be right back with some more questions. Hi, everyone. This is Kate Gaskell, Head of Teaching and Learning here at the Modern Classrooms Project. The best part of my job is when I get to connect with teachers, serve as their thought partner, and learn about how the modern classroom professional development has impacted their teaching practices. And sometimes we even get to share their words on the podcast. In this week's Love From Our Teachers segment, we're hearing from Bethany Rosera, a middle school math teacher in my home of Washington, D.C. Hi, my name is Bethany Rosera, and I am a math teacher at Stuart Hobson Middle School in Washington, D.C. The two things I enjoyed about my professional development experience with Modern Classrooms Project were the self-pacing aspects of the content and the one-on-one coaching availability. I loved receiving one-on-one coaching from my mentor. I could sign up for a time that worked for me and work through any problems I was having and get questions answered. I always felt supported by my mentor, and she helped me gain confidence in implementing the Modern Classrooms model. However, the most valuable part to me was being able to explore the course at my own pace, especially as a toddler parent. 
I could preview the materials for the next day, watch the videos, and draft plans on a schedule that worked for our family, mostly while my daughter was napping or after she went to bed. This was so helpful as a working parent to make me feel that I could be successful implementing the model and still learning and growing as an educator, as well as give my attention to the shorter sessions during the day and get feedback from my mentor. Overall, I highly recommend this program. You can learn more about the virtual mentorship program at modernclassrooms.org slash mentorship. Now back to Kareem and Zach. All right. Welcome back. We are going to keep going with some more of these great questions. So this next question says, how do you get students on board who are resistant to the MCP model? Yeah, you know, I, I like this question because in many ways, the way you get students involved and on board with the MCP model is to leverage the very powers of the MCP model. So first of all, one of the most powerful elements of the approach is to empower educators to work with students in small groups and individually. And that's actually how you get someone on board with anything, right? You don't just like tell them a bunch of times in a huge group why something's good. They clearly need to have a one-on-one conversation where you have the opportunity to actually figure out what they're resistant to. And I often say that it's not that they're resistant, they're actually nervous. Like resistance can come from a variety of reasons, but it's oftentimes because kids are actually a little scared. Um, And usually it's because they're concerned that they aren't able to handle all the freedom. Like they're so used to walking into a classroom and like giving, being given all these directions and structures and their time is managed so like clearly that when suddenly they have to control their own time for like 80 minutes, they're flustered by it. They're actually frustrated with their own capacity to use their time effectively. And then they're like, why aren't you like managing more of my time? Essentially, like they're almost saying like, I'm not ready for this. So when that happens, you kind of want to have a discussion with the kid about a, it's important and B, give them like a pump up speech about how they can do this. Like they're able to drive their own learning. They can handle this. They can focus. And then the second piece that's quite common is the fear that in some way, shape or form, you're less available. It's really counterintuitive, but it's very frequent. It's this like fear that the technology is taking over and you're like gone. I don't know why that happens, but it might be actually like a reaction to online classes. Like if a kid has ever taken like a class on ingenuity or something, you know, they're used to this idea that like somehow they're just going to learn in this portal and there's no teacher to help. So I always say like, A, you want to give them a pump-up speech that they actually can do this and that they shouldn't be afraid of being the driver of their own learning. But B, you really, really want to reinforce the notion that you're actually more available. So a lot of times with the kids that were most resistant, I'd say like, hey, just come sit with me all class. Like I'm sitting right here. You can sit right there. Like you want to talk? Let's talk. You want me to do a reteach? Let's do a reteach. And even if sometimes it was a little bit too much, like I was almost hand-holding, I'd tell the kid like, look, I'm doing this today to show you how available I am. But down the road, I'm not going to do this, not because I'm not available. It's actually because it's not very good for you and you need to be driving your own learning. Right. But it's a proof point for them. Like, hey, look at like how much more I'm able to talk to you. And there have been a couple times, I'm not a huge fan of this, but there's been a couple times where I had a class that was like super resistant 
especially early on, partially because I was probably not implementing the model as well as you know I did later in my career. Um, but I would actually show them by taking them back to the traditional approach <laughs> why our model is more effective. So I'd be like, all right, here we go. Let's lecture everyone. And they'd be like, stop. And that's when they would realize, like, wait a minute, doing that also shows kids that most of the other kids don't like the lecture approach. And when that happens, they're like, okay, okay, okay. It almost shows the kids like, this is what's best for everyone. And if I'm not a fan of it, maybe I need to learn how to be a fan of it or be a little bit more adaptable because the larger group actually really likes this approach. And I need to understand that when the larger group likes something, um, I need to be a little bit more adaptable. Yeah. This question really made me think a lot. I totally agree with everything you said. It made me think a lot because I couldn't think of a student who has been resistant to the model. When I think of resistance in the classroom, I think of like behavior management in a lecture setting. And that has never been an issue for me. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I work with young kids. There are some behavior issues that come up. But with regard to the educational model, um, no student has ever asked me to return to a traditional lecture-based uh, class format. Like, I, I guess the students who are most resistant to the model that I teach are actually the most advanced ones who are able to sit quietly and, and listen and learn from a lecture. And they are also not resistant, right? Like they're, they're able to just do it. They manage their time well. They, they work well within the model. Sometimes they'll say, Mr. Diamond, why don't you actually teach us? And I'm like, well, why don't you research and plan and build 45 minutes worth of instructional videos and then ask me that question, <laughs> you know? Like, that's me in those videos. And I'm also here with you, working with you right now. I, I really, I, I think it's a good question. And I, I think that your answer is spot on. Like, just being available for the kids and showing them that you're available and spending the time with them, um, helping them when they're behind and you know, explaining to them, just being very clear and explicit, this model is teaching you to manage your own time. And if that's, if that's difficult for you, it's something that we can work on. It's something that you should work on because when you're an adult, when you have a career, like no one is holding your hand through every minute of your day. And so having those conversations with kids, being there with them and, and helping them, um, I think would be the answer to the question. But again, I've never had a student who was really resistant to the model and wished that we could go back to the lecture way. Well, and the last thing I'll say on this is like, you should also probably try to figure out whether the student who's resistant to the model is actually just resistant to school. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why kids would be resistant to school. Um, there's a lot of structures in schools that we challenge in many ways that are pretty unpleasant and make kids feel pretty bad about themselves. And I would say that, you know, one size fits all approaches oftentimes make kids with unique needs feel really unsuccessful. So they might just be resistant to school, which means anytime something new happens in school, they're like, I don't want to do this either. So, you know, I wouldn't be too reactionary to that as well. Um, like anything, I think it's important to diagnose the rationale and the problem before sort of jumping the, you know, jumping to conclusions about whether or not something needs to be changed. I've never, ever encountered a student whose concerns about the model pointed to needing to move away from the model. If anything, they were evidence that you need to double down on the model. Plenty of time there's feedback on ways to improve your implementation of the model. But the rationale to completely move away from it tends to never particularly stick. At least it never did with me, and I haven't heard it sticking with others. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm 100% with you. Yeah. Um, the next question, you know, also common, it says, how do you use mastery-based grading using a traditional grade book? You know, something like Aspen and Power School. Um, 
Zach, I'm going to have you answer this, but I just want to point people to a couple of resources just regardless because there's only so much we'll be able to say on one podcast. So first things first, everyone should know that like I'm pretty sure every single teacher we've supported with the exception of a small few use traditional grade books. So like I always want to uh, set that misconception and make that clear is like teachers are not out here using our model with some like radically innovative systems or structures. They're using the old school grade books that seem to be built in like the 1960s at times the tech is so old um in addition to that i just would encourage folks to check out the new piece i actually have with jennifer gonzalez at the cult of pedagogy on mastery based grading because we actually dug in pretty pretty detailed here on um just like how mastery based grading works and how you actually do it in really traditional settings so uh, both good resources but zach what are your thoughts here there was also a webinar right didn't kate do a webinar on mastery-based grading. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. You're right. And Kate did a webinar on mastery-based grading, and we have a podcast episode on managing grading. Yes. Okay. I will link all of those things down in the show notes. They're great resources. Um, So my answer to this question, actually, Kate asked me this question, and she used my answer in the webinar. So pardon me if I repeat myself, but my my gradebook, we actually use ManageBack because we're in IB for all school. Uh, at my school, ManageBack is an IB grading and sort of implementation platform, but it's a grade book. You know, you put in scores from one to eight and it's very normal looking. I grade the summatives as I would normally grade them on the grading scale using the rubric and there's nothing weird or different about that. The mastery-based grading or the mastery checks, what I do is essentially turn them into a percentage at the end. So if there's 10 lessons and a student masters eight of them, they'll get an 80% which I then have to convert into an eight-point scale, but that's basically the idea. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this because really mastery-based grading needs to not be completion-based grading. But I have come to the conclusion that if you master eight of the 10 steps to do the to the project, then you've mastered 80% of the unit. I, I feel confident um, in my sort of calculation of mastery that way and putting a number on mastery. You may have thought a lot about this, Zach. Um, I actually thought very little about it because I realized there's actually not much that changes about the grade book. It's about how you treat the assignments. As long as you just treat the assignments through a mastery-based grading lens, the grade book actually doesn't change. So you'll see in the mastery-based grading piece I did in Cult of Pedagogy, like if you take a standard grade book in 10 lessons, you have a mastery check and an assignment for each. In a traditional grade book, you'd see like all these weird scores, 10 out of 10, then a 4 out of 10, then a 3 out of 10, then a 7 out of 10, then a 5 out of 10. And anyone looking at that just like has no clue what's actually been mastered. And then you look at a, a modern classrooms grade book, same structure, same lessons in there, What's different is you won't see any partial credits or random like grades. You're going to see scores that indicate mastery. If in your class mastery is an 80% or above, everything's going to be an 80% or above or a zero. If it's 100%, then everything's going to be 100% or a zero. So it's really about assignment treatment. How are you treating each assignment? If you just rethink how you treat the assignments, but use the same structure gradebook, you're actually going to execute mastery-based grading. And that's the key distinction, and that's what allows you to use any sort of grading system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the the rethinking that I put into my assignments was basically chunking them down into single tasks or single concepts or single skills. It doesn't have to be a quiz, 
You know, a mastery check doesn't have to be a test or a quiz. It can be a very simple little thing that you do. When you're done with that, either you mastered it or or you didn't. There's no gray area, right? I give my students a zero or a one. Um, and that's why I feel like if you've mastered eight skills and there were 10 you could have mastered, that's an 80%. And that's the summative grade at the end, right? Like I'm not, I don't actually put the mastery checks into my grade book at all. I just check them off or, or don't, or I give them a zero. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. And I think that is a good point to bring up is like, you want to pare down assignments. So you don't have like, I've seen some grade books where you see like folks that are like giving credits for guided notes and then a credit for like a different part of a lesson. And I would just be careful of anything in the grade book that's completion based just because it's frankly just uninteresting um, for students and for you. Like it doesn't actually tell you much information unless you have a model for like you want a portion of the grade devoted to sort of 21st century skills or like using your time effectively. And that's how you use the grading of, of uh, guided notes. That makes perfect sense. Just make sure everything in your grade book is purposeful, right? It's like telling a story about what the kid has accomplished or not has not accomplished. And ideally very minimal things in that grade book that are completion based. Yeah. The next one is do students update their own pacing tracker or do you update it? And how often well, in my case, I update it, and I update it every morning before class. Um, I know I worked with a lot of mentees, and I know other teachers who who do some combination of all of these things. A, a really interesting thing to do is to have students have their own individual pacing trackers. Um, I've seen that implemented by some teachers. I would say, though, that it's important to obviously have your own sort of master version of the pacing tracker as well. Some teachers don't want to display them publicly, and so they use individual trackers. Um, it's important for you to have your own pacing tracker. And I also think that it's important for you to be the one who signs off on the mastery checks as the teacher. If the students are updating their own pacing tracker, they still have to sort of get the the stamp of approval from you. And how often I do it every day. I mean, I, I like to have my students come into class and see the pacing tracker, you know, up to date as of now. Um, and I'll also do it in real time during class. Like if a student in the middle of a class chats me on zoom or in the classroom would come over to me and say mr diamond i finished lesson five i'll look at it and i'll grade it right then and there it takes me you know a minute the the frequency of of updating them is every day or at any moment during class and i think that this is another one of those interesting misconceptions is that like we're grading all the time but it's spread out in a way that really doesn't feel overwhelming at all like i in the morning i'll grade maybe 10 lessons total um, and then they'll submit lessons in class, and that's when I grade them. Yeah, you know, I um, I actually told my kids that I wouldn't update the tracker during the class period, um, just because I found it really annoying if I was like in the middle of a discussion with a student and a kid's like, "Mr. Farah, update me from five to six. and I'd be like, "I'm in the middle of a discussion about mastery here, and you're asking me to change that one number." So the expectation I set for my students was. It's going to be updated by next class period. It also relieved me of the pressure of trying to get through everything in one class period. So, uh, you know, the assumption was by next class period, I'd have the assignments graded and the mastery checks graded. And I'd have the tracker, tracker updated. That was the one I was using. I was using a public tracker. Um, a lot of teachers that use the personal trackers, the trackers that are like game board style, checklist style. I think the most common thing I've seen is students update it themselves and then teachers sign off on it on some periodic structure. So they might sign off on it once a week. They might check it at the end of every class for five minutes. So like some model, essentially you just want to avoid like 
kids just completely controlling their own tracker and you having no accountability over that. And, and as you said, Zach, like using the master check as the primary tool for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would avoid the pressure of trying to update the tracker during class because anything that's going to pull you away from being able to work in small groups and individualized instruction, like you want to avoid. And I would say just like running around to update pacing trackers, is not great use of your time during class, unless you have the time to like, and I would set that expectation. But if I had five, three minutes, I would just go update the tracker because it saved me time down the road. So what I would do when I was in class, and now it's even easier with the chat that I use, um, I would have on my whiteboard, just sort of a list, like I finished a lesson, right? And then once the list got long enough, I would say, okay, I'm going to do mastery checks now. And I would spend three or four minutes five minutes, maybe 10 minutes at the most, going through all the master checks that had been submitted and not checking with students in that time. I find that when it's really fresh in their minds, they've just submitted a lesson and they have to revise, that's a great time to revise with them. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. I'm curious, if you had a student that submitted a master check in the middle of class, what would you have them do in the meantime? Oh, I just told them to go on to the next lesson every time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, every single time. I never... I never told a kid to wait for me to grade their stuff. I mean, part of it was because they knew it would get graded by the next class period. But, you know, I always told kids, like, you're not going to lose anything by starting the instructional video, taking the guy to notes and starting to tackle the assignment. And once I get to this master check, if you didn't get it right, I'm going to call you down. Um, so just go keep working. Like, and, and that's kind of a good, in my opinion, like principle to impart on kids just in general about life too. Like, you can't just assume that you're going to get feedback on something immediately. Like if you, you know, give something to a professor or send something to your boss, like you shouldn't just like sit still and wait until you've got information. And I suffered from this myself as like an, a young adult. Like a lot of times if I was really anxious about something I had to submit to my boss or to my principal, I'd like not be able to do anything else until I got that feedback. Um, and it's clearly an instant gratification issue, right? Like I want to know right now whether I did this well or not. And it's good for kids to be like, uh, this journey's longer than this one mastery check. And I really need to be able to continue to push my work forward. And it's good to always contribute to your growth over time, even when you can't get immediate feedback. So I also told kids to keep it moving. Um, and then when I had the time, I ensured and like, I reassured them I would get to them. Um, and then when I did get to the mastery check, if they got it right, I'd tell them too, like, FYI, you're good on four or come over here. Um, and that always worked quite well. Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, I totally agree with you. Those are all really great points. And I do find it kind of frustrating. And I teach younger kids than you did, who can be much needier. And so like, if I'm working with a student, and we're like, really getting into the weeds on some concept, and then some other kid comes over and is like, can you check my lesson five? It's kind of distracting. Um, and that's frustrating. So yeah, I think if you're going to do it that way, it's important to have systems in place to, to stop that from from happening. Cool. So should we move on to this last question? Absolutely. Let it fly. This is a question for you. Does the Modern Classrooms Project have scholarship opportunities? I'd love to participate in the Summer Institute, but can't get the funding through my school. There's a few things. One, our Summer Institute is actually filling very fast, which is exciting. Um, So that's just something for people to note. With regards to scholarship opportunities, a lot of times our scholarship opportunities, to be transparent, are are driven by local philanthropists um, who create scholarship opportunities. So at the moment right now, we have an awesome scholarship opportunity available to all educators in Tulsa because a funder there has wanted to be able to empower as many teachers as they have funding for in Tulsa. Um, a similar scholarship opportunity is available to 16 districts in 
uh, a community in Illinois through the Tracy Family Foundation. So um, of those scholarship opportunities oftentimes are regional. Um, in some cases, they aren't regional. They can be national, but they're usually regional. And we'll post those things on our social media and, and let you all know through emails if that's um, available. The other option, it's actually being launched on March 15th. So depending on when you're listening to this episode, you know, it may or may not be before or after the launch, but you can always participate in it, is we are providing a fundraising campaign, like a crowdfunding campaign. So you're going to get your your own subscription or your own registration to our Summer Institute funded through that campaign. So you get to create your own little page that, you know, says, hey, I'm trying to raise money, my $495 cost so I can participate in the Modern Classrooms Project Summer Institute, and then post about it and anyone can donate to it. Um, you know, philanthropists might find it and get excited about it and just contribute to it. So if you're interested in that, you should actually email P2P, like the letter P, the number two, and then the letter P at modernclassrooms.org to get all the information you need to actually get your fundraising campaign page started. And then that'll run for some time and it'll allow you to kind of raise dollars so you can get your subscription, your registration funded uh, to the Summer Institute. So that's another option there. Um, we're always looking for, you know, philanthropists, local foundations, national foundations who really want to empower educators to be able to go through this program if their school or district can't fund it. And if you are, you know, if we're able to secure those opportunities, we'll certainly share it with the community. So that's the primary way is local scholarships, sometimes national scholarships when they come up. There aren't any national ones available at the moment, um, with the exception of our brand new uh, scholarship program for black educators. So that's been launched. Um, so educators can apply to that. Um, and then there's those local ones and the P2P campaign. So again, I think the best route right now, um, if you don't fit the qualifications of this, the local scholarships as well as the black educator scholarship, is to email P2P and Modern Classrooms org get a little fundraising campaign going um and do it that way that is awesome and that info is all down in the show notes so you can find that there awesome all right zach well as usual fantastic chatting with you i actually really love these q a uh yeah podcasts there's something really interesting about these um i like kind of just bouncing around different ideas around a variety of questions so folks continue to you know post these questions zach can you remind the listeners where they can ask us these questions Yep, there's at least two ways. You can go to modernclassrooms.org slash askmcp, or you can tweet at us with the hashtag askmcp. And I believe Christina also pulls questions out of the Facebook group from time to time. So if you're active in the Facebook group and you ask a question, it might wind up on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. Um, and as usual, wonderful chatting with you. Have a good rest of your week and hopefully everyone's holding up okay. I know it's still a very challenging time. Um, so keep doing what you do and we appreciate you and all the hard work you do for your students. Bye, everyone. Bye, Kareem. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast Podcast